0: Off of our theme of digging deeper for vacation Bible Camp, and we have covered topics like the patriarchs and anointing. This week we will talk about Messiah. And Messiah is something that is spoken of world around because all three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, have a concept of the Messiah. All three understand the messianic prophecy. However, All three of us understand that differently, and so there is confusion sometimes when you hear the word Messiah. What does it mean? And today we go back into the Book of Psalms, those songs of the ancient Israelites and the first Judaic churches, and there we discover that the uh, the Messiah is the Anointed One of God. There, the words ring true that this should be one of the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to King David, that one of his own issue would sit on the throne in Zion, the city of Jerusalem, for all time. Now, in Judaism which traces itself to the religion of the ancient Israelites. That's what you get when you read the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah. You get the religion of the ancient Israelites. And they were accustomed to the Messiah, which means the anointed one, being a human being who would come to save them from their circumstances, to physically liberate them. God the Father set up this paradigm in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus by liberating God's people from their bondage in slavery in Egypt. And there God set them free, sending two people to be vessels of that, two messianic figures, Moses and Aaron, Moses being the prophet and Aaron being the priest. And after that time, God continued to send people to liberate the oppressed, God does this in the book of Judges, with the judges that rise up to help the nation of Israel. God does this in the monarchy, uh, calling forth kings to help bring the people their freedom from foreign oppressors and foreign threats. David himself was a liberator. And yet, there seems to be a troubled transition in Judaism from the Messiah to Jesus. And we on this side of Christianity don't understand that. Well, how can they not understand that the Messiah is Jesus? Clearly, if you read the New Testament, which they don't have, you will understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Absolutely. We all agree on that, that Jesus is our anointed one. Jesus is the Son of God who has come to set us free from our slavery to sin and death. Christ is our liberator. We would be bonded forever to our sins, our mistakes, our past, our failures, if it were not for Jesus Christ. And Messiah, meaning anointed one, in Greek is Christ. So when we refer to Jesus as the Christ, and it's Jesus the Christ, not Jesus Christ as if Christ is his last name. But Jesus the Christ, he is the Messiah. We understand that this is God in human form, who has come here to set us free from our sin and to bring us into a deeper, right relationship with God Almighty, that of all the persons of the Trinity, that God the Son came to us in Jesus of Nazareth, and that through his earthly ministry, his crucifixion and death on the cross, and then his resurrection on the third day, that he brought to us a freedom the likes of which humankind has never known. And that all of us are welcome to be blessed by that gift, that fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. And why people don't understand that that's Jesus can be mind boggling to a Christian. But after all, two thirds of the world are not Christian. We are in the minority. And those of us who understand the Trinity wrestle with why people can't figure this out. It seems so easy. One plus one plus one is one. All joking aside, we have tension between Christianity and Judaism. Because all three of the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, trace themselves back to Abraham. They trace themselves genetically and spiritually to Abraham. And there we find that just as Abraham's children didn't always get along just as Jacob's children didn't always get along, we, their spiritual descendants, do not always get along. And yet the one thing that seems to be a place for us to come together, this idea of Messiah tends to throw us apart. And it starts because we don't agree on who the Messiah is. Who is Judaism waiting for? If it's not Jesus, then who do they think is coming? Well, We see in the book of Isaiah that in that prophecy that they are waiting for someone to come and do something very specific. Isaiah 45 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes to open doors before him, and the gates shall not be closed. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the riches hidden in secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who you call by your name. And for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I shall call you by your name. I surname you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me. Isaiah lets us know that God was calling up a very particular person to serve as Messiah in the history of of Judaism and the Israelites, that this person is named in Isaiah as Cyrus. Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire, the first Persian dynasty. They rose in power and influence and military might, and they conquered the epic empire of Babylon. And when they did that, Cyrus arrives there in the capital of Babylon and discovers that there are these displaced persons. There are these Jews from a foreign country who had been ransomed off and taken here and living as exiles in this country. And he says to them, go home. Go back to your land and rebuild your temple. He gives them their literal freedom. And he not only empowers them to go back and rebuild the temple that Babylon destroyed, but then he equips them with funds and material goods in order to go back and do that. Cyrus was hailed as the Messiah. He literally freed them and sent them back to their homeland. The Jews have been waiting for this to happen again, that someone would come and set them free and bring them home. And when Jesus walked the earth in his earthly ministry, many Jews looked at him and thought, this could be our Messiah. He has God with him. We see him feeding thousands. We see him healing the sick. We've watched him dispel evil spirits. We see power in him. Perhaps he is the one who will set us free from our Roman oppressors. They watched with bated breath as he entered into Jerusalem. They wanted to see if he would expel the Roman conquerors and set them free. And just when it looked like he might just do that, when he has a face-to-face meeting with Pilate, the personal symbol of the Roman authority in Jerusalem, Jesus' response is, My kingdom is not here. For if it were, you would have no power over me. And all those people who had hope in him were crushed because they didn't understand what he was saying. They thought that he was just out there, that he was wrong, that there was something off about him. This was his moment. This was his moment to take all of that spiritual authority and cast out Pilate and set the people free like Moses did to Pharaoh. This was the time. And yet, the conquerors remained. And Jesus was humiliated, tortured, and crucified. They buried him. And the hope Of millions of Jews died that day. Their hope in Jesus ended for them. Because the prophecy had not been fulfilled in the way that it always had. Perhaps they didn't get that reading in Revelation that says, I am making all things new. That how you thought things used to be done, God can do in new ways. And so Jesus rose on the third day, and showed those of us who would open up the eyes of our hearts that, yes, he is our Messiah. So there's tension there between Judaism and Christianity. You might be shocked to learn, though, that Islam also has a Messiah. That Islam believes that there is one who is coming to liberate us from the suffering of this world. That there is one who is coming to restore God's reign here. They believe that. You might be really shocked to learn that they believe that that person is Jesus. But they don't believe that he is divine. They do not believe in the Trinity. They do not understand that Jesus is God in human form, the one we rejoice to call Emmanuel. And so they are waiting for Jesus to return. We are waiting for Christ to come back, the Jews are waiting for the Messiah to appear, and I have this tremendous hope way down in the depths of my heart, far away from the world news channels, that tells me that one day when Christ returns and restores what should always have been, that perhaps we will finally all be together and rejoicing. Because right now, things can seem very hopeless. The Jews are waiting for the Messiah to come and rebuild the temple, like Cyrus did for them. But there's a problem with that. Where the Temple Mount is, where the first two temples were built, there is only a small portion of the outer wall left. We call this the Wailing Wall. And there Jews gather from all over the world every single day without fail to literally wail to the heavens and mourn the loss of their house of God. And they do this while looking at a mosque that sits on the Temple Mount. And so they watch as their Muslim brothers and sisters are able to worship at this holy site, and they are not. And until someone is able to come and broker the tearing down of a mosque to build the world's biggest synagogue, there's going to remain tension. And as Christians who are sometimes caught in the middle between these two, these two brothers of ours in faith, one representing Isaac and the other representing Ishmael, we find ourselves going, Jesus, you might want to come back quick. You might want to come back and fix this. But what we also discover is that Jesus came because there was liberation to be done. And Jesus began it. Oftentimes, we as Christians think, Jesus, come bring the kingdom now because this world is awful. This world is filled with sin and suffering, and we cannot take it, so you must come back and fix it. But the Bible tells us that at his birth, Jesus inaugurated the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom has come near, proclaimed Jesus, because it has. And there are times as Christians that it is so close. Sometimes it's that worship service. It's inspiring and we can feel the movement of God. We can feel the presence of Jesus with us. Sometimes it's those times in our lives where we are just so overflowing with gladness and thanksgiving and blessing that we know that the Lord is with us and for us. And the kingdom feels very real and tangible in that moment. Those are the times when the Bible rings true and we think, yes, the kingdom has come. It is already here and it is getting better and Christ will come back to bring it to fulfillment. The Alpha that began and the Omega that will put the capstone at the completion when he planted the cornerstone. And yet, in the midst of our lives, there are so many days, weeks, months, and Lord help us, even years, When it feels like we are wandering in a complete absence of the kingdom of God. Where we wonder where God is. We wonder why this suffering is happening to us. We wonder how could a God that loves us this much allow us to suffer this bad. Some of us are fighting battles within our bodies. Betraying us with sickness and disease. Some of us are wrestling with detrimental and hurtful and threatening thoughts and feelings in our heads. Some of us are struggling outwardly with our family or our friends, our neighbors, people in our schools or in our jobs. Some of us are literally at war in the military. And we think to ourselves, where is the kingdom now? Where is it now that we need it? And so the Messiah, the messianic prophecy, draws us back to where we should be. When Jesus came into the temple upon his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the next day he went into the temple, and he's well known for turning over the table. I'm not going to turn this one over, I promise. It's very tempting though. It's like right here. And he flipped over the table, and clergy love to use that symbol as Jesus' righteous anger and indignation over what they had done. They had made a mockery of religion. They were selling things and exchanging money for goods. And all of this so that people could make a profit in the courtyard of the temple. Not for the glory of God, but for their own profit. And Jesus came and flipped the tables over. And that's the way we like to come at it. Is it an economic critique? Is there something to be said about capitalism here? Instead, on this day, on a day when we celebrate the sacrament, I invite us to look at it as Jesus clearing the table, not overturning the table, but cleaning it off and making room for this, this holy meal. This is how he would end his earthly ministry. The last time he was gathered with his followers and taught them with his washing of their feet, with his breaking bread and taking holy communion with the one who would betray him. Jesus was showing us that God is with us, that God does care, that God wants us to be ready and able and encouraged to do the work of continuing to build the kingdom until Christ returns. And so Jesus makes this space, this holy and sacred space where all can come and be fed, where every single person can find forgiveness, be in the presence of their Lord and Savior, and know that they are loved. That's what this table means. This table is about the kingdom right here, right now. And Jesus tells those of us who recognize him as our Messiah that we have a job to do, that we are to fling wide the gates and open those doors, To tear down any obstacle that would keep people from here. To overturn any system or structure that would tell someone that they may not come here. To ensure that all may eat, all may drink, and all may find room at the table of God's grace. It's what the Messiah is calling us to do. And we have to do this. Because we live in a world where leadership constantly lets us down. Constantly. And as Christians, we recognize flawed leadership very quickly. Because we have the epitome of leadership, Jesus Christ, to look to. All leadership, every president, every prime minister, every general, every oligarchy... No leadership on earth will ever come close to the example set by Jesus Christ. And we are constantly disappointed in human vessels of leadership. The Bible is full of leadership failures. David is one of them. David brings a curse upon the people with his sin. God gives David an opportunity to pick what his punishment will be. Have you ever done that with your child? Pick your poison. It's a horrible thing, but there's something very, like, fulfilling about watching that, too. And so God says to David, you have your choice. You can either have a foreign invasion, you can have a plague, or you can take a census. And David chooses the census. And the people rebel for it. And David says, this is on me. This is my failure that's now being visited on people. Human leadership fails. If you've ever been frustrated with a human leader, then one, it's biblical. And two, it's a recognition of the fact that we all fall short of this standard. Leaders will suffer for their people. Good leaders will recognize that they are unable to ascend to the cross and that all of us have to play a part in our success. Every last Christian has to build the kingdom. That's what evangelism is. It's not that bad taste in your mouth when you think about going and knocking on a stranger's door and asking them if they found Jesus as if he's lost. Instead, evangelism is about building the kingdom, letting people know that you have made a place for them in your house of God, that you are willing to make space and ensure that they can come here and have this, this sacred meal, this tangible sign of God's grace. It is letting people know how much God means to you because you want everybody to have that kind of feeling, that God loves and accepts you and wants the very best for you, wants you to be your very best. That's what evangelism is, and that is what building the kingdom means. David, if we read 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, was told that one of his household would forever sit on the throne. Now, the psalm tweaks that a little bit and talks about one of his body. Well, the truth is that Jesus is not of the body of David. Jesus is not even of the lineage. He had no genetic connection as far as that goes. Instead, his earthly adoptive father, Joseph, was of the house of David. And because Joseph made room in his heart and in his life for Mary and Jesus, Jesus was part of the household of David. But I don't think the psalm's a liar. I think that we have to look with a different perspective at what may be fulfilled in the words of the psalm. What part of David's body was in Jesus, I would argue that it was his heart. For all of his failures, for all of his sins, and committing adultery and then having the woman's husband murdered is pretty sinful. David was beloved. God loved David, not because he was perfect, not because his sins were mild in comparison to other people but because David's heart was continually inclined to repent and seek righteousness with God. He strayed, he failed, he was full of fault, and yet every single time when it became apparent to him that he had hurt God, that he had hurt others, he repented. He repented when he hurt his people with a census. He repented and his heart was always directed, oriented to God, That was true in Jesus. That's why he constantly yearned to be in the temple. That's why he felt the compulsion to walk away from his parents at the age of 12 and walk into the temple by himself and teach. Because he was home. His heart yearned to be with God the Father. And so he walked into the house of God, and there he stayed. He came back, his final days on earth, in earthly ministry, he came back to God's house. And there in the temple, he once more preached and taught and healed and gave hope. His heart reflected David's. His heart reflected that all of us, even though we are sinners, are capable of being loved by God. Because God chooses to look first to the love and not The punishment. For those of us who recognize that we have fallen short, and as a leader, I recognize that I fall short. I recognize that when you put me next to Jesus, my leadership is a joke. It is abysmal. I make mistakes. I need this grace as much as anyone. And there are days where it feels like I need it more. But we come here because we recognize that no matter what we have done up until this moment, no matter what we have said, no matter what we haven't said that we should have said, no matter what we have done or not done that God calls us to do, this is our future. This is our salvation in the form that we are able to take within us to nurture hearts that atrophy because of sin. And that if we let our heart reflect Jesus, that same heart of David, that it will drive out the sinful inclinations, those same ones that Jesus talks about in the gospel accounts, that murder and licentiousness, adultery and theft, all of those come from the human heart. But if we will take on a heart like the Messiah, a heart of God, that we will not have the desire to enact those inclinations as profoundly as we do without Jesus Christ. That is why communion is so important. It makes us stop the cycle. It makes us pause and stay here for just a moment and remember that there is another way of being, that there is something else to which we are called. In our own way, every Christian disciple is being asked to be a messianic figure. We are being asked to liberate other people. And whether it is liberating somebody from their hunger with our food pantry, or liberating somebody from their fear for their children by providing them a full scholarship to the preschool, or whether it is ensuring that two young adults all the way in Belize are able to go to school to fulfill the dream that God has placed in their hearts, we are liberating them from a hopeless future. We continue to bless in the name of Jesus Christ. But that work will require us to be fed spiritually as much as physically and mentally. It requires us to be ready to do heavy spiritual lifting. And nothing can prepare us for that except God, God's self. And we can never stop doing the work of the kingdom. Can you imagine if Jesus has expectations and we come back and we're not even a quarter of the way done? I don't want to look into the face of God Almighty and know that we failed because we didn't try. God says to us, if you try and you fail, there is forgiveness. But if you won't even try, then is this really what you want? Do you really want to be in the kingdom for all time? We are those who have to make a crucial decision. Are we followers of the Messiah? Are we simply, like so many have throughout the years, waiting and watching to see when we are called to be and to do? Sitting on the sidelines was never an option for Jesus even when he sent his apostles out in pairs, even as they went forth to heal in God's name and failed miserably, Jesus was there supporting them, encouraging them, helping them, walking them through their failures and helping them look to see, why couldn't we do it, they asked. And Jesus was able to say, because your faith wasn't there. If we believe, as individuals and as the body of Christ, that we are capable because God equips us, then we will do everything that every messianic figure in the scriptures has done and more. One of the greatest things about David was that he knew where his weaknesses were. And he would walk right up to the line and say to God, here is where I end and here is where you must begin. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. David knew this. That's why even as a teenager, he took on the giant Goliath when no other military warrior would do that. He went down to the river to pray and gather five smooth stones. And he said to God, show your people, Lord. Show them that you are with them and that you are for them. And all those who have cursed your people and cursed your name, show them this day that you are God Almighty. And he walked back up to that giant. And with one stone, he fell the giant. And he didn't do that because he had superhuman strength and had been lifting weights all of his life and eating a lean protein diet. He didn't do that because he had worked out the kind of technical capability that would put an army ranger sniper to shame. He did that because he knew that if he prepared himself and he equipped himself and he prayed and he was ready and willing, that when he released and let his work go into God's hands, that God would see it through. And that stone struck the giant. And the terror and the reign of the Philistines over the Israelites was broken. He liberated his people as a youth. And when we hear our youth crying out to us to help them know the Messiah, how can we be still and silent? How can we not help them do what God has placed on their hearts to do? Sometimes liberation is stepping out of our power and raising someone else up. Christ is a mighty cornerstone. All can stand on that platform, on that firm foundation. And those of us who build our lives on that foundation shall never be shaken. We will never fall. And if we should slip or stumble, Christ promises us, That just as he reached down and grabbed Peter from slipping under the waves, he will save us. But we have to be willing to step out in faith. That is what it means to worship the Messiah. May we be messianic people so that those who are impacted by our words, our deeds, our acts of compassion and mercy will come to understand With just glimpses at a time, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed, the Savior, the Liberator, and that we are His servants. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one now and forever. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast.